Hey, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I also hope that it challenges you. And I want you to know that we are in our year in the greatest commandment, looking at this great commandment from Jesus to love God and to love people. And so I hope more than anything that this encourages you to love God and to love the people around you in a more holistic way. I also hope that you have some people around you to talk through some of these things with. And if you don't, we would love to see you at one of our Sunday gatherings or in one of our Restore groups. You can get all that information on our website at restoreaustin.org. I hope you enjoy the message. Thanks. The crucial point, I think, in general is this. Religiously observant people were offended by Jesus. But those estranged from religion and moral observance were intrigued and attracted to him. Jesus' teaching consistently attracted the irreligious while offending the Bible-believing religious people of his day. However, in the main, our churches today do not have this effect. The kind of outsiders Jesus attracted are not attracted to contemporary churches, even our most avant-garde ones. We tend to draw conservative, buttoned-down, moralistic people. The licentious and liberated or the broken and marginal avoid church. That can only mean one thing. If the preaching of our ministers and the practice of our parishioners do not have the same effect on people that Jesus had, then we must not be declaring the same message Jesus did. If the preaching of our ministers and the practice of our parishioners do not have the same effect on people Jesus had, then we must not be declaring the same message Jesus did. I first read this book in 2012. Amy and I were trying to figure out what it might look like to start a church from scratch. Now, we were really early in the process. We had very little idea what we were doing. We didn't know where we were going. We didn't know when we were going to move or even how we would do it. But I remember reading this book, and I remember reading that passage in particular at the very beginning of it and thinking, this is why. I don't know where, I don't know when, I don't know how, But I know that if we go and start a church, this is going to be why we do it. We wanted to start a church that would create space where licentious, liberated, broken, and marginalized people would be welcomed without reservation, without qualification, without ifs, or ands, or buts. And to be honest, it was super selfish. I wanted to do it because that's exactly who I am. And I wanted to create a place where me and people like me, me and my friends, could have a church. Because so many places along the way for both me and people that I hung out with, we didn't feel like we had a place in church. A few months later, Amy and I would meet Matt and Emily Gonzalez, and we decided to start a church called Restore. A place no matter where, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done or what your particular brokenness looks like, You can be a part of the family. And after four years of leading our church, I've come to realize there are really only two kinds of people in the world. Those who are broken and admit it, and those who are broken and act like they aren't. Two kinds of people. Those who are broken and admit it, those who are broken and act like they are not. This world is broken. 
Everyone in it is as well. I don't need to convince you all of that. You just look around, you turn on the news, you scroll through social media, and you see it. We, we hurt ourselves and we hurt each other on a daily basis. We are all broken. We have that in common, but we are not all willing to admit it. And that's what this story Jesus told in Luke chapter 15 is all about. Today is the last week in our series we have been calling Prodigals. And we've been calling it Prodigals instead of the more familiar title, Prodigal Son, because the three main characters in this story are actually all prodigal, not just the younger son. But because of the common title of the story, the prodigal son, it's easy to assume that prodigal means like wayward or, or disobedient or bad, but it doesn't. It actually means recklessly extravagant. That's what prodigal means, recklessly extravagant. So actually all three characters, the father and both sons, are prodigal in their own way. And so in weeks one and two of this series, we've looked at the two sons. The younger son, week one, who was prodigal in his pursuit of pleasure. Last week, Matt talked about the older son, who was prodigal in his morality. This week, we conclude this series by looking at the most important character in the story, and that is the father, the dad, who is prodigal in his love for his kids. We just sang, I have heard a thousand stories of what they think you are like. And I'm telling you, I stand up here and I look into your eyes and I know that we have each heard a thousand stories of what God is supposedly like. I don't think there is a better explanation of what God is truly like than the father in this story. It's an important story. It's an important character. But before we jump back into the story, I want to establish two things for us quickly. Number one, Jesus makes it very clear that the dad in this story represents God. So that's why Tim Keller calls this book The Prodigal God, because it's about God who is recklessly extravagant in his love. That's number one. Number two is the entirety of the Bible makes it very clear that Jesus is God. He is the divine in the flesh. He is God with skin on. He's the fullest and clearest picture we have of who God is and what God is like. So if we want to know what God is like, We need to look no further than the person and work of Jesus. So in reality, as we look at Luke 15 and the story of the prodigal son, we are looking at a story Jesus is telling about himself. He is our third and main character in the story because the father is God and Jesus is God, right? So this is a story that he tells about himself. And I don't think there's a better story in all of scripture to teach us about the love of God, both how he loves us and how he empowers us to love others. Let me say that one more time. I do not think there is a better story in all of Scripture to teach us about the love of God, both how he loves us and how he calls us to love others. Seems important, right? Nod with me. Important. Okay, so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Ready? Another nod if we're ready. Okay, great. Now, whether you've been here for three years at Restore or three weeks, you know that when I talk about the Bible, I'm going to talk about the context. Right? I'm going to talk about what was going on when the passage was happening, the time, the place, the culture in which it was written. So when Jesus tells this incredible story, it's important to note, it actually isn't in the flow of his normal public speaking. Now, if you've read the Gospels, the, the four accounts of Jesus' life, you know that he traveled all over the place, teaching crowds that ranged from a handful of people to like over 20,000 people. That was a lot of what he did as he walked around teaching people. 
And during these times of teaching, he told a bunch of stories that were like this one, but this one's different. Because when he tells this one, he isn't in the middle of teaching. He's actually in the middle of eating, okay? When he tells this story, he's not in the middle of teaching. He's in the middle of eating. In fact, he's not even the first one to speak in this passage. The story is told by Jesus in response to an accusation of someone else. Luke 15, starting in verse 1. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and even eats with them. So there were people that came from all around to to hear Jesus, to follow him, to teach with him. But Jesus did something else. He didn't just teach them. And in fact, right here, he's not just teaching them. He's sitting with them. He's eating with them. And that was a really big deal because even in our culture today, right, sharing a meal with someone society deems unclean or unworthy is a pretty big deal, even in our context. But in the first century Jewish culture, it was a much, much bigger deal. I want you to listen to how Pastor Malcolm Smith describes it. He says, in our Western culture, our first thought in eating is to satisfy hunger. There may be other reasons we eat, but essentially we eat together because it's mealtime and we are hungry. In the countries of the Middle East, eating was, and still is, a relational event. One ate bread to declare, establish, nurture, and seal a covenant relationship. To eat with someone was called table fellowship, and it meant that the persons eating at the table now stood in covenant solidarity with each other. So for Jesus to eat with tax collectors was not a social blunder done in ignorance. It was not a political gaffe of a newcomer to religious politics. He ate with them intentionally in a deliberate public act, sending a clear message that he knew could not be misunderstood by anyone. And that message is this. He was announcing that he was the friend of tax collectors and sinners. This is why the religious leaders scoff at Jesus as they watch him eat. That's why they say, can you believe this guy? It's one thing to like let these people listen to your teaching, but he's eating with them. He's breaking bread with them. He's entering into covenant friendship with these people who are unclean. Now I want to point something else out here that I believe is really important. It's super easy to pile on these religious leaders and be like, man, those guys were jerks. And they kind of were jerks, okay? So that's part of it. But a lot of times, including this time, the religious leaders of the time, they were really just trying to uphold what they thought the Old Testament law taught them to do. For instance, stealing was against the Old Testament law. If you know the Ten Commandments, you know that already. Now, if you stole from someone and you did not go through the kind of ritual cleaning process, it meant that the thief, the one who stole, was unclean. And according to Jewish law, you weren't to associate with unclean people at all. You weren't to eat with them. You weren't to even speak with them. You certainly weren't to enter into covenant relationship with them. So we know that tax collectors in the first century, they were all thieves. Do you know much about tax collectors in the first century? They were Jewish people who worked for the Romans. So the Romans were occupying uh, Israel at the time, and so they employed these Jewish people to come in and collect taxes on behalf of Rome. Now, they didn't really pay them enough to be able to make money, so what would happen is the Jewish people would go to the other Jewish citizens, and they would collect enough tax to give to the Romans, but then extra tax to give to themselves, right? They stole from their own people. They were thieves. So... If Jesus is eating with tax collectors and tax collectors are unclean thieves according to the law, 
What does that mean? It means that Jesus is purposefully breaking Old Testament laws to welcome people society deemed unworthy. Or to put it another way, since Jesus is God, this is God choosing to break his own rules to welcome people into covenant relationship with him. One of my favorite quotes is from a Franciscan monk, a guy named Richard Rohr, and he says, every time God forgives us, God is saying that God's own rules do not matter as much as the relationship that God wants to create with us. This is what Jesus is demonstrating by sharing a meal with tax collectors and other notorious sinners. He's breaking rules in favor of relationship. Here's Malcolm Smith again. Jesus makes a public point of sitting at a table fellowship with them, accepting them and reversing the accepted idea that he would be contaminated with their sin by close contact with them. By sitting at the table with them, Jesus was refusing to label them, accepting each one of them as they were. He was standing in solidarity with them, declaring a covenant of friendship. He sat there by choice and so accepted the shame, rejection, and hatred directed to them as his own. Now remember that, because we're going to come back to that in a second when we get into the story of this prodigal father. He accepted the shame and rejection and hatred directed at them. He accepted that as his own. Sitting with them plainly said that he would go to any length and pay any cost to embrace them as they were. But... As is still true in many cases today, the religious leaders watching Jesus eat with these tax collectors and notorious sinners did not understand what was happening. See, they believe the only way to get God's love is to earn it by following all the rules perfectly and making sure everyone else does too. Remember, there are two kinds of people in the world, those who are broken and admitted and those who are broken and act like they are not. These religious leaders, for the most part, fall into this second category. So Jesus decides to tell them a story. And it's a story centered around three characters, a dad and his two sons. Now the younger son, if you know the story, they are all sharing this property, working on this farm ranch thing together, and the younger son has had enough. And he goes to his dad and he says, Dad, I want my inheritance and I want it now and I want to take it and I want to go. Now, this is a huge deal, right, in this culture because you didn't get your inheritance until after the father died. And so what he was telling his dad is, I wish you were dead. I don't want to be a part of this family anymore. I'm turning my back on not just this family but our entire community. I want my money and I want to go. And the dad does it, which would mean selling his property because most of his, most of his wealth was in land. So he probably had to sell part of his property, monetize some of his wealth, give it to the younger son. The younger son doesn't even say thank you, takes the money and bails. Now, it's pretty quick what happens when he bails. He goes to the far country. He starts living this lavish lifestyle. Remember, he's prodigal in his pursuit of pleasure. We find out later there are prostitutes involved. It's this kind of big, lavish party, right? One verse, it says, he lived this crazy, amazing, unbelievable lifestyle, and it all fell apart. He lost all of his money. One verse, everything's gone. And then a famine hits, a famine hits the land. Remember, he's in this foreign land now. He went to this faraway country. He's got nobody, no family, no friends, no community. He has no way to make a living. And so he actually goes and hires himself out to a pig farmer. Now, if you know much about Jewish people, Jewish people and pigs don't really go that well together, right? And so he does that, though. He goes and he hires himself out to a pig farmer, which is probably a job we know from the context that pays no money because he actually wishes he would eat what he's feeding the pigs, 
So he probably is only given like a place to live, a shelter, something like that. And so he's in the middle of feeding these pigs. He's at the lowest point in his life, and it says he comes to his census, and he says, even my, my father's hired men have it better than I do right now, and so I'm going to go back home, and I'm going to ask my dad to just hire me back on as a servant. And so the younger son is walking home, and he's rehearsing this apology. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please just make me like one of your hired servants. And he comes over the hill, kind of entering into his community, and what does he see? His dad running toward him, picking up all of his long robes, throwing back his big jewelry, and running toward his son. Now, if you were here back in week one and we really explored this entire part of the story, you know that this says a lot about the way the father loved the younger son. It means he was probably waiting and watching for him every single day, for at least a part of the day, right? Because he saw him when he was still a long way off. Now, it also means that he was willing to accept any shame that came from running because men in that culture, especially older men, never, ever ran. They wore the heavy robes. They got all this stuff, right? It was shameful for them to run. They hired people that ran for them. They did not run. You also know if you were here week one that the son is kind of, uh, freaked out, right? The dad gets there and he hugs him and he kisses him and the son just, he doesn't know what to do so he goes into his rehearsed apology. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son and the dad interrupts him right in the middle of his apology before he can get out. Hey, would you hire me like one of your servants? And the father says to his servant, go get the, uh, go kill the fattened calf. We're gonna throw this party. Go get a robe, put it on him, get my ring and put it on his finger, put sandals on his feet for the son of mine was gone and his home, he was dead and he is alive again. It's this huge, beautiful thing where the father embraces him, hugs him, shames himself, reinstates him fully into the family, not as a servant, but as a son. But there's one other truly amazing thing that happens in the story. I didn't mention it in week one because I'm crafty like that and I was saving it for this. In that culture, it was customary for the town elders to go out to the city gate and confront an estranged child who was trying to come back home after leaving in a disgraceful way. So some son does what the younger son does, grabs his inheritance, turns his back, he leaves in this disgraceful way. If he ever tried to come back, it was the job of the town elders to go to the city gate before the person actually entered into the city, and they would stop them. And they would take this big like pot or bowl made of clay, and they would stop the estranged kid and they would throw the bowl down at his feet and break it in front of them. And it was this symbolic act of the brokenness of relationship between them. But the broken pottery was actually a legal act in this culture of banishment from the community. If they got to him and they took the bowl and they threw it down and it broke everywhere, it was them saying, you are legally banned. According to us, the town elders, the people in charge, you are banned from this community. That's why the dad ran. Isn't that incredible? I get chills talking about it. He was sitting there waiting because he knew he had to beat the town elders to the city gate to grab his son before they did. Before they could break the pot at his feet, he had a robe on him, which means he's part of my family now. They put a ring on his finger, which means he can do whatever I can do. The ring was a signet ring. It had the the seal of the father on it. It would be dipped in wax and put all over the place. It's like giving him a, a credit card to the account. He's saying, whatever I can do, he can do. He is fully back into my family. 
The father breaks the rules to forgive his son and welcome him home. The relationship is more important than the rules. But it's even more incredible than that. See, not only does the father break the rules for his son, he actually takes the sin and the shame of his son on himself. See, when the younger son left in that terrible and disgraceful way, the the sin and the shame of turning his back on his father and his community was his alone. He bore that. He wore that, right? And when he returned home, he was ready to face the consequences of his sin. He was ready to, to bear the weight of his shame, but the father steps in instead. You see, in the eyes of the community... Running to him, hugging him, putting the robe on him, reinstating him into the family. By doing that, the father is voluntarily bearing all of the consequences that would have gone to the son. He's saying, his shame, that's my shame now. His sin, that's my sin now. Any issue you have with my son, you now have with me. He's mine. And with that, the younger son is part of the family again. But the story doesn't end there, right? There's this older son. And if you know about the older son, you know that he's out working in the fields when all of this stuff is happening with his younger son. And so the father, they go and they throw the party, they kill the fattened calf, and the the older son comes in from working in the fields. And he hears this noise, and he's like, what's going on? He calls a servant over. He's like, what's happening? Is there a party? And the servant's like, yeah, your, your younger brother came home, and your dad's killed the fattened calf, and we're throwing a party. And the older son is angry. He's angry. And he's so angry that he actually refuses to go into the party. Most likely, he tells that same servant, go tell my dad I'm out. I'm not coming into the party. Now, it sounds like just kind of he's being a baby and he's being petty, but it was, again, a huge deal in this culture. Because you see, the older son was the right-hand person of the father. So when the father killed the fattened calf and threw a party, A, the fattened calf was massive, right? Like it was a big thing. It was enough to feed the entire community for days. So this would have been a days-long party for every single person in the community. And the older son, his job was to be the right-hand person of the father, to give hospitality to everyone who was there so that the father could mingle and be with his guests and, and do everything that they needed. The younger son was basically in charge. He was the host. He was the head of the party. By refusing to go in, he was saying, I don't want to be a son anymore. What he did is every bit as shameful and disgraceful as what the younger son did. I don't want to be in this family anymore. If this is how it's going to be, I don't want to be a part of it. But guess what? The father does the exact same thing for the older son that he does for the younger son. When the servant came in and was like, hey, your oldest son, he's not going to come in. He should have told the servant, go back out and drag him in. And if he doesn't go in, just kick him out of the family. I mean, that's, what, that's what should have happened. That's what he should have done with the younger son when he left. That's what he should have done with the younger son when he came back. And that's what he should have done with the older son when he refused to come in to the party, but he doesn't. He goes out there himself. Scripture says he pleads with him. He pleads with him. Please come back into the party. Please come back into the family. He takes that shame on himself yet again humbles himself, walks outside in front of everyone, the whole community. And he says, please come in. You're my son. I love you. Remember the two kinds of people, right? When the 
father goes out to the younger son, the younger son admits his brokenness. But when the father goes out to the older son, the older son acts like he isn't broken at all. But when the father shames himself, goes out to him, and pleads with him to come into the party, he does that anyway, knowing that the older son is going to be a jerk. Because pompous or not, moralistic or not, legalistic or not, this is his kid, and he loves his kid. Two sons with very different stories. One prodigal in his pursuit of pleasure, one prodigal in his morality, but they have both willingly separated themselves from relationship with the father. But this father, so prodigal in his love for his kids, he goes out to both of them while they are still in the midst of the sin and the shame, and he offers to bear it for them. Now we see the younger son accept the father's offer, but Jesus actually ends the story before we know for sure what happens with the older one. We don't know if he ends up going into the party or not, but we do know that he has an open invitation. And it's the same open invitation given to the religious leaders listening to Jesus tell this story. He's saying, come and sit at the table with me and all the other broken people. So what does this mean for us? Well, first, I think it means we need to admit our brokenness and accept the invitation to come sit at the table with Jesus. I think that's where it starts, right? Whether you are more like the younger son, whether you are more like the older son, it's time for each of us to put aside our pride and to come home to our prodigal father. That is the main takeaway from this story, and it's what we've been talking about for the last two weeks of this series. But listen, I know, I know that many of us, many of you have already done this. You fully realize that you're broken. You know you need help. You've admitted that you need God. You've admitted that you've been broken in this relationship with the Father, and you've come home to the loving arms of this prodigal dad. But for a lot of us, I think we've left it there. I think we've left it there. We think the invitation is to come to Jesus, right? And I've come to Jesus, so I'm good. And if you're thinking that, you're right. That is the invitation. But it's not the end of the story. Those of us who have accepted the invitation to come and sit at the table with Jesus have been given a calling, a mission by our prodigal father, and it is simply this. Make space at the table for anyone who wants to sit with Jesus. That's what we have been called to do. That is the mission we have been given. Make space at the table for anyone who wants to sit with Jesus. Way too many churches and way too many Christians are all about building higher walls to keep people out. But I believe Jesus clearly teaches and demonstrates that God is calling us to build longer tables, not higher walls. Longer tables where all are welcome, where all are given a chance at a seat. Do you know the religious leaders used to call Jesus, quote, a glutton and a drunkard because of who he shared his table with? And that's funny, right? Like, oh, he was a a drunk and he ate a lot and all that. And we think of like just a pejorative context of calling someone a glutton and a drunkard. Here's the verse. 
Luke 7, 34, the son of man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, if you've read through the accounts of Jesus' life in the New Testament, or you've been in church for a while, you've probably heard that before. But did you know that calling someone a glutton and a drunkard is actually a legal charge from the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament? Here's what it says. If someone has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. They shall say to the elders, quote, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. Listen, he is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his town are to stone him to death. You must purge the evil from among you. Calling Jesus a glutton and a drunkard wasn't just some pejorative offhand remark. It was a legal charge against him. The religious leaders were saying, this person has rebelled against everything that we hold dear as a faith and as a religion, and he needs to be stoned to death. Purge this evil from among us. And it was all because of who he shared a table with. He was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And they tried to kill him for it. And they did kill him for it. So obviously this isn't an easy calling. Now I'll admit, no one has ever called for my stoning, not yet, not yet. But over and over again in my short time as a pastor of this church, I have been accused of welcoming the wrong kind of people to Jesus' table. And it's cost me. It's cost me monetarily, it's cost me relationally, it's been hard on me, it's been hard on my family. I had the head of theology for an entire denomination say I shouldn't be a pastor anymore and that he doubted my salvation because of who we allow to come to our table here at Restore. Who we allow to come to our table here at Restore. It's not our table. We don't get to decide who comes and who doesn't come. It's Jesus' table. He decides who sits at it, and he's been incredibly clear. Whoever wants a seat has one. It doesn't matter if you are the younger brother, and you are licentious, and you are liberated, and you've run away, and you've been prodigal in your pursuit of pleasure, and it doesn't matter if you're the older son who is so judgmental and so mean that you refuse to even talk to people who are lower class. The invitation is the same. You have a place at the table if you will humble yourselves and take one. It's not our table. We don't get to decide who sits there. Our job is simply to make space at it for anyone who wants to sit with Jesus. It's not an easy calling, but it's a good one. It's a worthwhile one. It's a worthwhile one. The Christian life does not end when you take your seat at the table. It is only just beginning, okay? The Christian life does not end when you sit down at the table. It is only just beginning. I don't know, I, what are we so worried about anyway, you know? That we will be condemned for sitting with certain kinds of people? Good, that happened to Jesus, right? Are we worried that when the religious leaders build the big walls to keep people out, that we will be left on the outside of it? Good, that's where Jesus will be standing too. I believe we should pray we get accused of loving people too recklessly and welcoming people too radically because that is exactly what Jesus was consistently accused of. We aren't compromising the gospel by loving people too much. We are confirming it 
You cannot compromise the God who is love by loving people too much. Just let that sink for a second. You can't compromise the God who, when he talked about himself, he said, I am love. Not I do love, even though he does, but he is love. We cannot compromise the God who is love by loving people too much. We have been called by God and empowered by the Holy Spirit within us to make a space at the table for anyone who wants to sit with Jesus. Scott McKnight is one of my favorite modern theologians, and he has this book called Jesus Creed. It's amazing. Pick it up if you want to. It's really good. In this book, he talks about how Jesus uses tables and how we are called to use them too. Here's what he says. Jesus used the table to create an inclusive society. Some of his contemporaries understood his table to create a dangerous society. But for Jesus, the table was to be a place of fellowship and inclusion and acceptance. For Jesus, the table was to embody the Jesus creed. To love God and to love others means to invite all to the table. This will mean inviting people to our table or our church, our fellowship, our home or office, regardless of who they are. We have been called by God to make space at the table for anyone who wants to sit with Jesus. This is who I want to be as a pastor, and it's who we want to be as a church family. This is one of the biggest reasons we started this thing called A Year in the Greatest Commandment back in August. See, the greatest commandment is this thing where when they asked Jesus what is most important, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the greatest commandment, according to Jesus. Now, we've spent the first few months of this year seeking to understand and embrace the love God has for us, because 1 John 4 teaches that we can only love because he first loved us. Right? So if we want to love God and love others, we have to understand that he first loved us. We are empowered by that love to love others. That's what we've been doing since late August, trying to understand and embrace this love God has for us so it can flow through us, the people around us. But today, today is a turning point in our year in the greatest commandment. Empowered by God's love for us, we now turn to what it means to actually fulfill this greatest commandment. This thing Scott McKnight calls the Jesus Creed. And like Scott said, to love God and to love others means to invite all to the table. We cannot fully love God and love others without embracing this truth. To love God and to love others means to invite all to the table. So to mark this turning point in our year in the greatest commandment, we are going to do just that. We are going to invite all to the table. We are going to make space for anyone who wants to sit with Jesus. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to share Jesus' table together, and I'll give you some more instructions about that. God, thank you for... Thank you for the way that you, in the flesh, as Jesus, courageously stood up to those who would say that not everyone who wants a place has a place at your table. God, I thank you that you went and sought out and sat with the tax collectors and the notorious sinners and the prostitutes and those that society had deemed unclean and unworthy. I thank you for that. Jesus, I thank you that not only did you do that, but when the religious leaders scoffed at you, 
You didn't push them away. You didn't say go away. You invited them to the table too. What a lesson for us, God. No matter who we are or what we've done, we have a place at your table. And no matter who we are or what we've done, when we've taken our seat, our job is now to make space for everyone else who wants to sit. God, empower us to do that by your spirit. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.